Today we are beginning, uh, what we're looking at is Be Ready to Partner. We are in this series looking at Be Ready. Uh, the first Sunday of the month we talked about being ready to tell. Last week we talked about being ready to communicate or gather. And today we're talking about being ready to partner. And it's important who we partner with. But as uh, before I get too deep into uh, an introduction, I'm just going to tell you where we are. We're in Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 25, which is the very last verse of Acts chapter 12, going through chapter 14, verse 20. Now, some of you, you're, you're scared because you know, normally I preach about six or eight verses and I'm about 40 minutes. So here it is, two chapters. So you're getting a little anxious. Just, just It's okay. I'm taking a helicopter view of this passage of Scripture. I'm not going to read all 72 verses today. All right, so just hold on there. Uh, as way of introduction, the 13th and 14th chapters of Acts tell the story of the first missionary journey. That's what this, uh, these two chapters tell. And Paul and Barnabas set out from Antioch. Now Antioch was 15 miles up the river uh, Orontes so that they actually sail from Solicid, uh, its port. And from there, they crossed the sea to Cyprus, where they preached at Salamis and Paphos. From Paphos, they sailed to Perga and Pamphylia. And Pamphylia was a low-lying coastal province. And they did not preach there because it did not suit Paul's health. He had some health issues, and preaching there was not going to work. They struck inland and came to Antioch in Pisidia. When things grew too dangerous there, they went 90 miles further to Iconium. And once again, their lives were threatened, and they moved to Lystra, about 20 miles away. And after suffering a very serious and dangerous attack, there they passed on to Derby, the site of which has not yet even been identified. But from Derby, they set out home, going back to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch and Pisidia on the way. And having this time preached in Perga and Pamphylia, they took ship from Italia, the principal port of Pamphylia, and sailed via Seleucia, to Antioch, the whole journey occupied about three years. And I'll take a bow on all those names. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, but, you know, as, as we read through the Bible, you know, there's challenging names and words. I practiced many of those. I still struggled with Orontus. I had to write it out phonetically on my notes to make sure I said that correctly. But that's the whole first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. And why am I calling this ready to partner? Well, if you look there as we start, in just a moment, in verse 25, uh, and then verses 1 through 4 of chapter 13, you'll see where the partnership is approved. And we're going to start there in just a moment. And we can see that this was a lot of traveling that they did in the midst of the first missionary journey of Paul. And we can gather that mission work is tedious work. Mission work is tedious work. Mission work is a joint effort. And when we take up the mantle of the great commission, we are taking up a great mission. When we take up that mantle. Mission work is not only short term, but should be seen as a long term partnership. The ultimate mission is to see the lives of unregenerate people be regenerated by the power of Christ through the gospel. Today, as we are recognizing Sanctity of Life Sunday, we cannot avoid the vital work of seeing lives saved spiritually, but also physically, as we are presently in what I've heard called a culture of death. 
Today we are in what is called a culture of death. It's getting worse and worse every single year, almost month by month. I'll talk a little bit more in detail at the closing of the sermon when I get to how Paul is in partnership even with suffering will be my final point. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in detail there. But as we start out here in Acts chapter 12, there in verse 25, uh, you can read along with me. I'm going to read verse 25 down through verse 3. And this is my first point is Paul is in partnership with approval. Partnership with approval. Verse 25 of Acts chapter 12 reads like this. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. And so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now this first point goes all the way down through verse 12. But I'm just going to give overview in the latter parts of these verses. I'm going to hit some major points, and then I'm going to talk about what, what I mean, what the Lord's laid on my heart when we contemplate being ready to partner. So in this first part, we see Paul and Barnabas and John, whose surname was Mark, being, uh, being commissioned to go out and share the gospel. The people or groups that we partner with, we need, they need to be evaluate, evaluated to whether their organization or character is one we desire to come alongside and serve for the glory of God and the kingdom's expansion. They need to be evaluated or approved. And I want you to understand that when we look at this, especially when we look down there into verse 1 of chapter 13, I want us to take in the partnering of these men from different cultures. You see this for the purpose of kingdom expansion. Barnabas was a Jew from Cyprus. Lucius came from Cyrene in North Africa. Simeon was also a Jew, but his other name, Niger, is given. And since this is a Roman name, it shows that he must have moved in Roman circles. Manian was a man with aristocratic connections, and Paul himself was a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia and a trained rabbi. You see, this is a diverse group of people who were seeking out the Lord and the Lord's will for expanding the kingdom work. These, they were all scattered around this region. They came together. They prayed together. They fasted together. They called upon God together. That's the reason why, as I preached last week, we need to be ready to gather. You need to gather together to know how to send people out. You've got to know how to approve of them. If no one comes in these doors, but yet they call and they say, I'm a missionary of God. Okay, well, good deal. Let us evaluate. Let us pray. Let us fast. Are you in the same fellowship as we are with what the Scriptures say? 
Because there's that's the reason why we got all the different denominations. It's the reason why we got different belief systems. Because not everybody believes exactly the same way. So do they agree with what we agree with here to partner with them? So we need to set that approval on them. And you see that here in these verses that they prayed over them, they laid hands on them and sent them away. Paul was in partnership with approval. And, and this is very important for us. In that little band, they exemplified the unifying influence of Christianity. Men from many lands and many backgrounds had discovered the secret of togetherness because they had discovered the secret of Christ. If we can discover the secret of Christ, we can come together. We can gather together in unity. But I want to tell you today that those that come together and are hostile and divisive and are isolationist, if you will, are those who are not in the Word of God outside of the walls of the church. If you want to gather for the purpose of seeing Christ glorified and go out, this can't be your only way of being fed here in these walls. You don't just eat a meal when we have a fellowship at the church, do you? No, you eat breakfast, lunch, and supper at the house or out to eat somewhere. You feed yourself elsewhere. Same thing with the Word of God. You've got to feed yourself at home. These guys were, were serving the Lord in their own lives. They weren't dependent upon just the pastor. They weren't dependent upon just the, the Sunday school teachers. They weren't dependent upon whether or not the worship is, 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 is your cup of tea. They weren't worried about that. They came in ready to serve the Lord. And they were ready to go. All these men that are mentioned here, I believe any one of them, if the Holy Spirit would have said, now separate from me Niger and Lucius, or separate from me um, Manian, or whoever it is, those men, it would have said, those men went out. Because they were all prepared, because they came in ready. So you got to be ready to be approved, because you don't know. I mean, you hope you know, but you don't know what the Lord's going to call you to do until you spend time with him. Scripture also confirms that those we hang out with and spend time with are influencers on our lives and ultimately our effectiveness in the gospel. Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, it says, evil company corrupts good habits. So choose wisely who you set approval on when considering moving forward in ministry or life. Be mindful of that. Bad company corrupts good character is what the NIV says. We need to be cautious about who we surround ourselves with because what we're looking for is approval. Saul and Barnabas found approval through the Holy Spirit. That's the most important person to find approval from. But it helped that they had a company of people that loved the Lord and were pursuing the Lord with them. And so when they said they're doing a good job, they're doing a good work, the Holy Spirit says these two separate out from me Go share the gospel. We come in and we, we set approval on people so they may go out. In the latter part of these verses is we see here, which I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm giving you an overview. But as you look down there a little bit further in six, uh, 13 verses 6 on through 12, we find that in going they encountered a magician, a false prophet who was a Jew. Now this magician tried to sway the leaders away from Paul's message but Paul, through the Holy Spirit, 
put a blindness on him that made him have to ask for help just to walk around. In this unfortunate situation, if you look down there, uh, a little further down into the passage of Scripture, uh, I guess over on, um, I was going to say what page I was on, but <laughs> in the latter part of verse 11 and 12, especially verse 12, it says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Sometimes bad things will happen so the glory of God may be revealed and people may be saved. We ask, why does this bad thing happen? Well, number one, these people were questioning the work of the Lord, and God, through, through Paul, called that upon them. And then the other people saw, man, this is God's working. And so... People came to faith, they began to believe, they were astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And when we go out approved with that Holy Spirit empowering from our churches, listen, there is going to be a movement that will take place. But we, we discredit the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, I've said it before, we're kind of scared of the Holy Spirit because we don't know what He's going to make us do. How about this? He's going to make you do what you're supposed to be doing. The problem is we're not doing it. So we're scared to do what we're supposed to do. And that's tell people about Jesus. And if we would do what God called us to do, there would be no fear in it. We just need to be, we need to be set out and we need to be in partnership and approved in that partnership to go out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We look there in the next set of verses. In chapter 13, looking at verses 13 through 41. That's a lot of verses, guys. It's a lot of verses. But I want to tell you what happens in those verses in a quick overview is that we see Paul giving, given the floor in the synagogue to share the gospel. Given the floor. And I want us to understand, this is kind of what I pulled from this. Paul in partnership with proclamation. We, those that we partner with, he and Barnabas go into this synagogue and Paul begins to preach. What does Barnabas' name mean? Anybody know? Son of encouragement. When we go out, we need to have a partner that's encouraging to us. Someone who will speak life into us. We need somebody. Some of you have surrounded yourself with a bunch of Debbie Downers that I mentioned last week. So you don't feel like you could do anything. You're discouraged. You're depressed. Get them folks encouraged or get them out your life. I'm just being honest with you. You need a Barnabas in your life. Everybody needs a Barnabas. And Paul had Barnabas with him. He was the encourager. I'm sure the whole time Paul might have been like, man, this is tough sled. Barnabas like, but you got it, Saul. You got it, Paul. Don't you remember what Christ did to you on the road to Damascus? Don't you remember that? Don't you remember how everybody was afraid of you? But then God got a hold of you, and you've seen all these people come to faith. Don't you remember that? Because you remember Barnabas? You ever had somebody be an encourager to you like that? Don't you remember when this happened? Don't you remember how God blessed you here? Don't you remember how this happened here? Don't you remember how this person got saved? Don't you remember how we planted this church here? Don't you remember that? You need a Barnabas in your life. And Saul had this. Paul had this Barnabas in his life. So when, when the floor was given to him, Paul had no hesitation to get up and start sharing so what I want us to gather from this, now Paul is in Pisidia. He is in the, in the town of Pisidia, or the province of Pisidia. 
And I want us to gather from this, the people or groups we partner with need to hold to the teachings of the Old Testament and New Testaments and our convictions as a church. They need to hold to these things. Paul and Barnabas agreed upon the Old Testament. They agreed upon the New Testament. They agreed upon what happened in Christ's life. And as, as we look down through there, if you look through verses 16 through 41, you see where Paul addresses the forefathers of the people. He says, you who fear God, listen, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers. Chose our fathers. Later on, you see then, Paul addresses the prophets of the people. He says they brought about prophets and judges. Verse 20, and he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterwards, they asked for a king. He progresses through all the people they tried to put in leadership instead of God. Instead of God. And he says, this is what you've done. And then finally, he gets on down to the Messiah of the people, Jesus Christ. And he begins talking about Jesus there in verse 23. From this man's seed, talking about David, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus after John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. And then Paul goes on, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those, you, and, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent, for those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not know him and, and did not heed the voice of the prophets or read, uh, read every Sabbath have fulfilled uh, them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up from, with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, for their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm there in verse 35, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, this is Jesus Christ, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. This is the message of the gospel. Jesus has come for the forgiveness of mankind's sins. And yet people chose to turn away. 
And how was, how was Paul Saul able to do this? Well, obviously it was through the fact that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. But every one of us needs that partnership of a Barnabas to encourage us to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul was in partnership with proclamation. We need to be people who proclaim. And when we partner with people, they need to be proclaiming the same gospel that we are. Not some deviant gospel, not a false gospel, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of a day like today, when I, when I mentioned that about a culture of death, we have a society today that wants to kill anything, anything that has any, uh, any deformity or any inconvenience on a person's life. If it's inconvenient, get rid of it. In Canada, you know, they're killing people in, in uh, nursing homes. They don't have any value of life. So they give them that option to basically have doctor-assisted suicide. That's what they're doing in Canada. And don't, don't wait, don't think that it's not coming to the United States. They've tried it in the past. They're coming again. They're already coming for the womb, which we thought was the most sacred, secure place in the world. I'm telling you, and it's all in the name of trying to say the world. It's a worship of the Material world is the reason why this happens. It's too populated. It's too populated. No, it's not. This guy, uh, uh, said, 60 years ago, said that there's too many people on the planet. There was 3.5 billion people. He said by 1999, the world was going to run out of food. We've got more food today, and we got 8 billion people on the planet today. These people want to save the world while killing babies and the elderly. The Bible calls them wolves. Because what do wolves do? Wolves steal eggs out of, out of uh, birds' nests. And foxes do that. And wolves pick off those that are injured and elderly from the herd. What do they do? They're a bunch of wolves. That's our culture today. It's a culture of death. We must be a culture of life. The church, if there's ever any place where there should be life, it should be here. And on a day as today, it's sanctity of human life. And I know we've got to focus on babies for the most part today, but we've got to focus on all life. All life is valuable. From the moment of conception until the time, of, of, of the time they're taken home to the Lord, under natural causes or sickness, whatever you want to call it, natural causes, let it be the Lord's will, not man's will. We are not God. We are not God. And that's the problem. Is those that say the earth, the material earth, is more valuable. Now, don't get me wrong. God calls us to be good stewards of our planet. Okay, I'm not telling you to go out there and, and be irresponsible. But what I'm telling you is this. Human life was created in the image of God. Nothing else. Nothing else. I love I, I love my dog. I care for my cats. You know, um, <laughs> take that how you will. But you know what? Though? That's not my wife. That's not my daughter. That's not my son. That's not my mama. That's not my daddy. I'm not going to care for them the same way I care for those that are made in the image of God. 
and neither should we. Now, I'm not telling you, like I said, we need to be good stewards. We need to care for the things that we have. But we have got to partner with those that proclaim the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's look at there in verses uh, 1 through 10 of chapter 14. Paul, in partnership with power, now he's made it to Iconium. He's made it to Iconium. Now, at the end of chapter uh, 13, it says in verses 49 through 52, it says, And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. We've got to be proclaiming the culture of life that's only found in Jesus Christ, who is the, the, the light and the life of men. That's who Jesus Christ is. Verse 49 says, And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. In suffering, they led out. They led out. And I want us to understand that Paul, he is in partnership, uh, in approval. He was Paul in partnership with proclamation. And now Paul is in partnership with power in verses 1 through 10. And we see that they were the disciples and Paul and Barnabas were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Now all of them are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're getting after it. They're ready to go. So they're in partnership with power. They made it to Iconium. And so I want you to understand the people we partner with should rely on the power of God in their efforts and pursuits. Not rely on themselves. We have got to rely on the power of God. You know, we could, this church could function in man's power week in and week out. We could plan it. We could organize it. We could do it every week. But if we want to see change, we've got to rely on the power of God. We've got to be praying people. we got to be pursuing people. People who pursue Christ. He sought us when we were not seeking Him. But now since He's found us, let's keep pursuing Him. Don't think, I've been found. Don't treat it like a marriage a lot of times. Oh, you found the one, you married her, now you ain't got to do nothing. You got to keep pursuing that person, right? You know? If not, it becomes dull and stale. Stagnant. You got to keep pursuing that person. And it's the same thing with Christ. If you want a vibrant life, like a well of water flowing up inside of you, you need to keep pursuing Christ. He's still living, but are you? He's still living, but are you? So we've got a, he, we see Paul in partnership with power in verses 1 through 10. And the power of God is the only way people are saved. But it is the proclaiming of the word that people are saved. And we see here in verse 1, we find a great multitude of Jews and Greeks coming to faith in Christ by believing the message of Paul and Barnabas. It says there, now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But, you always got these difficult people. It's always causing problems. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. But yet, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, 
who is bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided. Part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. Then in verse 8, And in Lystra a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Paul was in partnership with power. Why, why did he have power? It's not so much that he had power alone. He had power through the Holy Spirit. Because he was approved. Because he had proclaimed. And because he had power through Jesus Christ. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And Paul looks around and he sees this. He preaches the gospel. Multitudes are saved. He comes into this area, into Lystra, and he finds this man who can't walk. And he speaks to the man, pick up your mat and walk. Very Christ-like, huh? Very Christ-like, huh? If you were in Sunday school this morning, you read something very similar. Very, very similar instance happened in your Sunday school lesson this morning. And Paul speaks and says, pick up your mat and walk. And he leapt. And picked up his mat and walked. Then, of course, the Pharisees asked the same question they asked before. Who did this to you? How dare they do this on the Sabbath? Man, 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 man. Can we just rejoice for a moment that somebody is healed? Is it such a big deal when it happens? Get off your high horse and, and just, just be thankful that there's a God that saves and heals. There's so many people they just want to nitpick every little thing. Oh, they did this and they did that. Uh. Oh, gosh, get away from him, folks, man. How annoying. <laughs> Can I just be honest? I mean, it just, I, 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 I mean, and listen, I, I've, told, I've told people, I fight pessimism. And y'all probably think, really? Yeah, I do. I have to fight that, man. I fight that all the time. I fight the, the negativity that the devil wants me to have. And I say, Lord, there's greater things to be done. I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to be negative. I want to be positive. It may be slow to work the positivity, but we got to believe in the, in the things that God's going to do something. God's going to do something greater. He's got something greater in store. But what are we going to do? What are we going to see? Be patient. Part of the fruit of the Spirit, right? If you've got the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentle self-control. <laughs> I'm going to get it all right in a minute. There's nine of them. So we, we've got to, we, we see the power of Christ. Got a little off, off point there. I got a lot to cover, but uh, we're, we're getting close. We're getting close. We know that the power is in the gospel. That's the most important thing. He, he shared the gospel. We see that in verse 1. We saw so many come to faith. We see there in verses 8 through 10 where Paul observed this man. He looked at him intently, saw he had the faith to be healed, and said, stand up to, straight on your feet. He leapt and walked. Listen. We know in Romans 1.16, Scripture tells us when Paul was writing back to those in Rome, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation, first for the Jew, then for the Greek. That is something that we need to know. It is the power to save that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all through chapter 13, we see Paul proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he goes on 
And uh, we see God working in the middle of persecution. God was working signs and wonders through Paul and Barnabas for the purpose that unbelieving, hard-hearted Jews would come to faith. These types of signs and wonders were used in the early building of the church. And it was done so that people could see the mighty hand of God. Now, I don't believe these have ceased. Some people believe in a cessation of gifts. You'll hear that. I just believe that they're not as common nor necessary since we have the living word of God to show Christ fully. You know, at this time, Christ had walked the earth. The Holy Spirit wasn't indwelling every single person who came to faith. Now, in, the, in, the, in Acts, that was starting to happen. But it was a very small group of folks at this point. But while Jesus walked the earth, he had apostles and disciples. So they were bound to an area. But yet, when, when Christ went back into heaven, he said, I'm going to send the helper. You're going to do greater things than I've done. That doesn't mean that we're going to do the same things he's done, but we're going to be doing it on a greater scale. Because now you got people from Jasper, Alabama, over to Bangkok, over to Sao Paulo, Brazil, over into in uh, Guadalajara, Mexico. You got people all across the globe filled with the Holy Spirit doing the work of Jesus Christ. That's what it's talking about. And we need to rely on the power of God through the Holy Spirit so that people can come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's like I've said before. The Holy Spirit's not floating up and down the aisle. The Holy Spirit dwells in you and me. And when the Holy Spirit is, is at work, that means he's at work in you and me. That means that he's leading people who are led by the Spirit to tell other people who do not have the Spirit about how to receive Jesus, confess Him as Lord, believe in their heart, and then they'll come to faith and the Holy Spirit will indwell them. That's how that works. It's how it works. The power of the gospel is unto salvation, first for the Jew and then the Greek. And then we look at verses 8 through 10. When the crippled man heard the good news of Jesus Christ, Paul noticed his faith, called out to him to stand up straight and walk. And the crippled man now had to find a new way of being referred to because he was no longer the crippled man. And the Bible don't give his name. It just says the crippled man. Well, who is he now? He is the healed man. He is the man who's been touched by the healing power of Jesus Christ through the sharing of the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's no longer the crippled man. No longer the crippled man. His past is behind him. No longer is he known by that. Just like you and I. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're no longer known by what we used to be known for. We shouldn't be. Some people may call us that, but you say, no, 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 no. You, do you see me lying on a mat anymore? Do you see me broken down? Do you see me hurt? Do you see me buried in sin? No, you don't. You know why? Because that's not me no more. Because when Jesus Christ touched me and the Holy Spirit filled me, I become a new man. When Christ comes into you, behold, the old has passed away and all things have become new. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You're no longer that crippled person, that sinful person, that lying person, that adulterous person, that fornicating person. That person is doing all these different things. That's not you anymore. No longer are you defined by your past you are now defined by Christ. He's not the crippled man no more. 
There's power in Jesus. There's power in Jesus. And Paul relied on God's leading to whom he should speak to for healing. And in that moment, God worked that wonder. And we should look for those who are actively relying on and living in the power of God to partner with in ministry and life. We should look for them. Look at Paul's partnership in humility, verses 11 through 18. It says, now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in the front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate, intending to sacrifice these things to these guys. And they were going to sacrifice them with the multitudes. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among them, crying and saying, Man, why are you doing these things? We are also men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he, never, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these things, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. They, they were humble in, in, in what God had done in and through them. The people or groups we partner with should deflect glory to God and from themselves. When we partner with people, it's not about us. It's not about us. It's not about a name other than the name of Jesus. That's the name that it's all about. And if we ever say, oh, give glory to New Prospect, give glory to this person or that person, no. I had somebody the other day, and they said, they said, uh, well, what do you believe? And I said, well, I believe the Bible. And, and this individual told me what church they, they went to and said it was a Reformed Presbyterian church and, and said that uh, that's kind of Calvinistic. And I said, well, that's good. You can be that way. I said, but, but, but my belief falls under no man's name. My belief falls underneath the Bible. You can say what you want to say. I believe what the Bible says. Calvin, Arminian, Luther, Spurgeon, it don't matter to me. Those are all great guys. They had great input, but I'll tell you this. What does this say? What does the Word of God say? Let's go to it. I don't need to look at what so-and-so wrote. Now, granted, there's benefits to reading commentaries, not taking anything away from their insight and wisdom. Don't want to do that. But ultimately, this is where it comes from. And so, I mean, this, this should humble us more than anything else. The word of God. No man should humble me, but God alone, his word humbles me. It reveals to me, it's like a mirror, and it reveals to me my sin. And when I look into it, I see where I fall short of the glory of God, because I'm a sinner. But in it also I see where although I fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of my sin is death. But I see also where the word of God says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Not through Blake Prater. Not through John Calvin. Not through Jacob Arminius. Not through any of these other people that's come before me. But through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. And I don't think any of those men that have come before us would ever say, Tag my name to who you say you believe or how you say you believe. 
I don't think they'd like that one bit. And if I could just say this for a minute, you know, everybody has a, a negative thing about uh, John Calvin. You know, John Calvin didn't come up with the five points of Calvinism. Did you know that? He didn't. Some people who came after him came up with that. So just, just a heads up in case you ever wonder and people start bringing that all up. John Calvin did not come up with the tulip or the five points of Calvinism. Okay, I'll just end it right there. Um, you know, we should be found doing great things ourselves. We should be. And in partnership with other people, organizations, and groups. But we must not absorb the glory, but rather deflect that glory to God. Just like John the baptizer, John the Baptist said, he said, I must decrease and he must increase. That's the way it should be. We should be humble in, in, our, in, our, in our efforts. And when we see God bless, be humble in that. Be thankful. Deflect it to God, not, not to ourselves. And lastly, that's all 11 through 18. Um, uh, of chapter 14. Uh, and in the uh, verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20. Paul in partnership in suffering. Now I know <clears throat> I'm past my time. But I'm going to try to go through this quickly. If the people or groups we partner with are suffering for doing good. We too should share in that suffering. But also be ready to come to the aid of those that are in suffering. I don't know if you paid any attention, but since Roe v. Wade got overturned, there has been pregnancy tests and resource centers all across the United States that have been vandalized, destroyed, paint thrown on them, uh, feces thrown on it, everything else you could imagine. It's, it's disgusting. Pregnancy tests and resource centers, it's for life. It's for the life of people. And there's a culture of death today. And they want to see people who want life to die. It's the culture of death. People are always looking to put someone or something on a pedestal to worship. And we see that here in this text. Paul and Barnabas were the vessels through which God did something great and extraordinary. And the people saw this firsthand. And, and, and they wanted to make them great. And, and I jumped back up. I apologize. I should have folded this piece of paper in half. I'm down here suffering. I was going back up into humility. Um, here we go. No one truly desires to have suffering as a part of their lives. But in almost every human life, in almost every human life, there are moments of suffering and sorrow. Whether we want it or not, we're going to experience suffering and sorrow. When suffering comes upon us, especially due to our clinging to the word of God and his truth, it is truly a time to dwell on Christ and on his word. Paul himself wrote to those in Rome in Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Peter wrote in his first epistle, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect establish strengthen and settle you that's first peter 4 19 and chapter 5 verse 10 throughout peter's first epistle he is warning us to the sufferings we will experience since our master suffered most and suffered first half of chapter 3 all of chapter 4 and half of chapter 5 in first peter speaks to the suffering of the believer and ultimately the church for standing with christ in his word the people, organizations, and groups we partner with may need us. 
as suffering for the work of the Lord is getting more real in the United States. Granted, we are not where many nations are, uh, nor should we compare ourselves to their plight, but we are growing less Christian and more atheistic and agnostic every day and every moment. Culture today is a culture of death. And if I may quote some from an article by Albert Moeller on the suffering of children in the womb and the culture of death, I, I hope you'll give me these few moments. He wrote, when we look with some historical perspective at the last 50 years, we understand that it is indeed a culture of death to which we have come. The phrase, the culture of death, has been used for several years now by those who have perceived the crisis of the age. It has perhaps been popularized most effectively by Pope John Paul II in his encyclical Evangelium Vitae, a gospel of life. Therefore, he observed, the 20th century will have been an era of massive attacks on life, an endless series of wars and a continual taking of innocent human life. Life has been denied and annihilated, not only on the plains of war, but also in the sanctity of the womb. In the United States, since the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, between 40 and 45 million infants have been aborted in the womb. The culture of abortion has unleashed a warfare on the womb, unprecedented in its destruction and also in its lack of conscience. There has been a cauterization of the American conscience so that the multitudes do not even understand the issue in moral terms. The unborn child is reduced to nothing more than a biomass of unwanted tissue in what is euphemistically described as the product of conception. Now, these, these next few things I'm going to read uh, are a little bit more detailed, okay? The technologies of abortion are growing even more sophisticated, and they are now so gruesome and yet so effective that abortions can now be reduced to the use of a sufficient dosage of birth control pills. Today, we also face the abortion pill, RU486, the human pesticide, the taking of which kills the unborn human life with a silent and unforeseen perfection, unprecedented in human history. Clearly, we have lost all ability to maintain moral discourse. We use terms like partial birth abortion, when that process is nothing less than the incision of scissors into the cranial cavity of an unborn infant. The scissors are then opened and a suction tube inserted. The brains are extracted and the skull is collapsed. And then the unwanted bioproduct of conception is removed. We know what a transparent lie this is. And yet our moral discourse is so malformed that we cannot speak of such issues in rational terms. He goes on to say, the church must be a culture of life, contending for life at every level, in the womb and in the nursing home, in the hospital ward, on the streets, in the schools, everywhere. And even as a moral minority, the church must be engaged and not disengaged. Our mode must not be to turn inwardly but instead to engage the culture in such a way that we bear open witness to life, even calling for the life of the culture. So in understanding this culture of death, 
this culture of suffering, we need to partner in with our people, groups, and organizations that stand with us in a biblical stance for life, not just spiritually, but physically as well. We must tell the good news in the midst of a culture of death. We must have partners in which we approve. We cooperatively proclaim. We rely on God's power. We serve in humility. And we protect in suffering. That's who we need to be, church. We need to be a culture of life. A culture of life. 